Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about retreating from reality into the altogether more appealing world of adventure game books from the 80s. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom and this episode we'll be tackling the most infamous dungeon in all of fighting fantasy, the feast of traps and monsters which is Death Trap Dungeon. This instalment is a little different. The deadliness of the dungeon is sufficiently high that I've recorded not one, but two episodes showcasing two different playthroughs. One with an honestly rolled up character, and one where I've taken the maximum values for all three attributes. It's this second playthrough that I'll be featuring in this episode. I'll be releasing a somewhat shorter bonus episode containing that first playthrough in a few days' time. Death Trap Dungeon marks the first time the series returned to the classic murder-spelunking action that characterised the role-playing games which inspired the fighting fantasy series. Whereas Warlock of Firetop Mountain was an exercise in serving up the classics, sticking largely to the tropes and expectations of a Dungeons & Dragons adventure, Death Trap Dungeon is an exercise in showing off just how strange the dungeon environment can get with a proper framing device. Death Trap Dungeon was written by Ian Livingstone, with cover art and internal illustrations by Ian McCaig, whose art so enlivened the preceding City of Thieves. It was first released in 1984. Without any further ado, I present my second playthrough of Death Trap Dungeon. Welcome to my second playthrough of Death Trap Dungeon. The first playthrough ended ignominiously, I think is the right word. And so what I've decided to do is actually do a second run using a character that's effectively a paragon of awesomeness. So my first character was a bit rubbish... This character, Vastly Bromagnet, is awesome at everything. Uh, skill 12, stamina 24, luck 12. Properly cheated to get the best possible stats. And I'm still not convinced I'm actually going to make it to the end of the adventure. Hopefully, however, we will be making it a little bit further than our first luckless contestant in the trial of the champions i'll be taking a different route through pretty quickly so as to try and avoid duplicating material i've already covered so hopefully this is a longer and i hope equally enjoyable tour through death trap dungeon Despite its name, Fang was an ordinary small town on the northern province of Chiang Mai. Situated on the banks of the River Kok, it made a con- <laughs> Sorry. Situated on the banks of the River Kok, it made a convenient stopover for river traders and passengers throughout most of the year. A few barges, rafts, and sometimes even a large sailboat could usually be found moored at Fang. But all that was long ago, before the creation of the Trial of the Champions. Now once a year the river is crammed with boats as people arrive from hundreds of miles around, hoping to witness the breaking of an ancient tradition in Fang and see a victor in the Trial of the Champions. On the 1st of May each year, warriors and heroes come to Fang to face the test of their lives. Survival is unlikely, yet many take the risk for the prize is great. A purse of 10,000 gold pieces and the freedom of Chiang Mai forever. However, to become champion is no easy task. Some years ago, a powerful baron of Fang called Sukhumvit decided to bring attention to his town by creating the ultimate contest. With the help of the townspeople, he constructed a labyrinth deep in the hillside behind Fang, from which there was only one exit. The labyrinth was filled with all kinds of deadly tricks and traps and loathsome monsters. Succumvit had designed it in meticulous detail so that anybody hoping to face its challenge would have to use their wits as well as their weapon skill. When he was finally satisfied that all was complete, he put his labyrinth to the test. He picked ten of his finest guards and, fully armed, they marched into the labyrinth. They were never seen again. The tale of the ill-fated guards soon spread throughout the land, and it was then that Sukhumvit announced the first trial of the champions. Messengers and news sheets carried his challenge, 10,000 gold pieces and the freedom of Chiang Mai forever, to any person surviving the perils of the labyrinth of Fang. The first year, 17 brave warriors attempted the walk, as it later came to be known. 
not one reappeared. As the years passed and the trial of champions continued, it attracted more and more challengers and spectators. Fang prospered and would prepare itself months in advance for the spectacle it hosted each May. The town would be decorated, tents erected, dining halls built, musicians, dancers, fire-eaters, illusionists and every sort of entertainer hired, and entries registered from hopeful individuals intent on making the walk. The last week of April found the people of Fang and its visitors in wild celebration. Everybody sang, drank, danced and laughed until day broke on the 1st of May, when the town thronged to the gates of the labyrinth to watch the first challenger of the year step forward to face the trial of the champions. Having seen one of Circumvit's challenges nailed to a tree, you decide that this year you will attempt the walk. For the last five years you have been attracted to it, not for its rewards but for the simple fact that nobody has ever emerged victorious from the labyrinth. You intend to make this the year in which a champion is crowned. Gathering up a few belongings you set off immediately. Two days' walk takes you west to the coast where you enter the cursed port Blacksand. Wasting no time in that city of thieves, you buy your passage on a small boat, sailing north to where the river cock meets the sea, and from there you take a raft upriver for four days until you finally arrive in Fang. The trial begins in three days' time, and the town is in an almost hysterical mood of excitement. You register your entry with the officials and are given a violet scarf to tie around your arm, informing everyone of your status. For three days you enjoy Fang's greatest hospitality and are treated like a demigod. During the long merriment you almost forget your purpose in Fang, but evening before the trial the magnitude of the task ahead begins to dominate your thoughts. Later... You are taken to a special guest house and shown to your room. There is a splendid four-poster bed with satin sheets to help you rest, but there's a little time left for sleep. Just before dawn, a trumpet call awakens you from vivid dreams of flaming pits and giant black spiders. Minutes later, there is a knock on your door and a man's voice rings out saying, Your challenge begins soon. Please be ready to leave in ten minutes. I use that voice a lot. You climb out of bed, walk over to the window and open the shutters. Already people are thronging the streets, moving quietly through the morning mist, spectators on their way to the labyrinth, no doubt hoping to find good vantage points from which to watch the competitors. You turn away and walk over to a wooden table, on which your trusty sword lies. You pick it up and cut the air with a mighty sweep, wondering what beasts its sharp edge may soon have to meet. Then you open the door into the corridor. A small man with slanted eyes greets you with a low bow as you emerge from your bedroom. Please follow me, he says. He turns to his left and walks quickly towards the stairs at the end of the corridor. Leaving your guest house, he darts down narrow alleyways between houses and you have to walk quickly to keep up with him. Soon you come into a wide dirt road lined with cheering crowds. When they see your violet scarf, they cheer even louder and start showering you with flowers. The long shadows cast by the people in front of you shrink as the bright yellow sun rises higher in the morning sky. Standing there, in front of the noisy and vibrant crowd, you feel strangely alone, aware of your coming ordeal. Suddenly, you feel a tug on your shirt and you see your small guide eagerly beckoning you to follow him. Ahead, you see the looming hillside and the dark mouth of a tunnel disappearing into its inner depths. As you get closer, you notice two great stone pillars on either side of the tunnel entrance. The pillars are covered with ornate carvings, writhing serpents, demons, deities, each seeming to scream a silent warning to those who would pass beyond them. There's a, a very gloomy-looking illustration uh, facing this page, and you can see the trial master and the various heroes. And Yeah, there's a very sort of strong sense of menace coming from it. You see Baron Succumbit himself standing by the entrance, waiting to greet the contenders in the trial of champions. You count five others standing proudly in line, their violet scarves displayed for all to see. There are two bare-chested barbarians dressed in furs. 
They stand completely motionless, legs straight and slightly apart, arms thrust forward to rest on the hilts of their long, double-headed battle-axes. A sleek elven woman with golden hair and feline green eyes is adjusting the cross-belt of daggers wrapped around her leather tunic. Of the two remaining men, one is covered from head to foot in iron plate armour, with a plumed helmet and a crested shield. The other is cloaked in black robes, only his dark eyes showing between the swathes of his black face-scarves. Long knives, a wire garrote, and other silent death weapons hang from his belt. The five contenders acknowledge your arrival with almost imperceptible nods of the head. You turn to face the exultant crowd for the last time. Suddenly, a hush falls over the crowd as Baron Sukumvit steps forward, holding six bamboo sticks. You draw one from his outstretched hand and read the word fifth. Then the trial begins. The knight is first. He salutes the crowd before disappearing into the tunnel and is followed half an hour later by the elf. Next goes a barbarian and then the dark assassin. Now it is your turn to salute the crowd. Holding your violet scarf aloft, you take one final deep breath of cool, fresh air before turning to pass between the stone-pillared gateway into Sukumvit's corridors of power, to face unknown perils on the walk through the mighty Baron's death trap dungeon. Well, that's quite the introduction. Uh, I do think Ian Livingstone's really good at setting a scene. Uh, I feel very excited. The clamour of the excited spectators gradually fades behind you as you venture deep into the gloom of the cavern tunnel. Large crystals hang from the tunnel roof at 20 metre intervals, radiating a soft light, just enough for you to see your way. As your eyes gradually become accustomed to the near darkness, you begin to see movement all around. Spiders and beetles crawling up and down the chiselled walls disappear quickly into cracks and crevices as they sense your approach. Rats and mice scurry along the floor ahead of you. Droplets of water drip into small pools with an eerie plopping sound which echoes down the tunnel. The air is cold, moist and dank. After walking slowly along the tunnel for about five minutes, you arrive at a stone table standing against the wall to your left. On it there are six boxes, one of which has your name painted on its lid. Do you wish to open the box? I do because I know there's something good in it. The lid of the box lifts off easily. Inside you find two gold pieces and a note written on a small piece of parchment addressed to you. After placing the gold in your pocket you read the message which says, Well done. At least you have the sense to stop and take advantage of the token aid given to you. Now I can advise you that you will need to find and use several items if you hope to pass triumphantly through my death trap dungeon. Signed, Succumvit. Memorising the advice on the note, you tear it into tiny pieces and continue north along the tunnel. After walking down the tunnel for a few minutes, you come to a junction. A white arrow painted on one wall points west. On the floor, you can see wet footprints made by those who entered before you. It is hard to be sure, but it looks as though three of them followed the direction of the arrow, while one decided to go east. Do you wish to head west, following the footprints, or head east, following the lone footprints? I will go west, as I did last time. Following the three sets of wet footprints along the west passage of the tunnel, you soon arrive at a junction. If you wish to continue west, following two sets of footprints, you can. Do you wish to head north, following the third set of footprints? I will go north, following the third set of footprints. Ahead you hear the thud of heavy footsteps approaching. Out of the gloom steps a large primitive being dressed in animal hide and carrying a stone club. On seeing you, he grunts and spits on the floor, obviously a native of Northampton, then raises his club and lumbers on towards you, looking anything but friendly. Definitely a denizen of Northampton. You draw your sword and prepare to fight the caveman. The caveman has a skill of seven and a stamina of seven. I'm going to roll some dice. I defeated the caveman without taking a single scratch because 
Vastly bro magnet is awesome. The caveman is wearing a leather wristband with four small rat skulls hanging from it. Do you wish to put it on your own wrist, or would you rather set off north again? Like, this is an evil dungeon full of evil things. I genuinely think this is probably a trap, so I'm going to go off to the north. You see a backpack propped up against the tunnel wall. You wonder if it belongs to one of your rivals. Do you wish to take a look inside, or would you rather continue north? I mean, it's definitely a trap, isn't it? It's definitely another trap, so I will continue north. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. You arrive at a junction in the tunnel. A new branch leads west, but the wet footprints you have been following continue north. You decide to keep following the footprints. You soon come to another junction in the tunnel. One branch leads east, but the wet footprints you have been following continue north, and you decide to follow their trail. This is a familiar location. The passage opens out into a wide cavern, which is darker but much drier. Ahead you see the footprints gradually fade, then disappear. There is a large idol in the centre of the cavern, standing approximately six metres high. It has jewelled eyes, each as big as your fist. There are two giant stuffed bird-like creatures standing on either side of the idol. Do you wish to climb the idol to take the jewels? Or do you wish to walk through the cavern to the tunnel in the opposite wall? So, I've tangled with this idol before. I'm still going to try and climb up it though. Because I do feel like I should be... I mean, it's an Ian Livingstone story. I feel as though I should be trying to scavenge as much as is humanly possible. The idol is very smooth and will be difficult to climb. Do you have any rope? I do not. Slowly and carefully you begin to climb the idol. You are about to grasp hold of the large ear when suddenly your foot slips. Test your luck. I have a luck of 12 so I am automatically lucky. You just manage to grab the idol's earlobe and regain your footing. You scramble over its face and sit down on the bridge of its nose. You draw your sword and consider which jewelled eye to prize out first. Do you wish to prize out the left eye or the right eye? I'm going to be prizing out the left eye. As you touch the emerald eye of the idol, you hear a creaking sound below you. Looking down, you are shocked to see the two stuffed birds taking flight. Their wings flap in jerky movements, but they are soon above you and look set to attack. Fight the flying guardians one at a time, but reduce your skill by three during this combat because of your restricted position. The first flying guardian has a skill of seven and a stamina of eight, and the second flying guardian has a skill of eight and a stamina of eight. I will see you on the other side. Okay, I have defeated the flying guardians. It turns out Stuffed exotic birds are a lot better at fighting than you might think, as I suffered a total of 10 stamina points of damage. Fortunately, a Cornish pasty and a packet of custard creams have swiftly got me back up to 22 points of stamina. So that was a surprisingly close run thing, given their low skill scores. But yeah, that's the way it goes sometimes. You look down and see the crumpled bodies of the flying guardians lying motionless on the floor. You start to prize out the idol's emerald eye with the tip of your sword. At last it comes free. You're surprised by its weight. Hoping that it may be of use later, you put it in your backpack. Do you wish to prize out the right eye? I do not. I would rather climb down the idol. You lower yourself carefully down the idol, and wasting no more time in the cavern, run forward to the tunnel in the northern wall. Not much further down the tunnel, you come to a closed door on your left. Putting your ear to the door, you listen intently, but hear nothing. Do you wish to open the door? I mean, obviously, yes. I, I wish very much to open the door. You enter a room which is small and completely empty. As soon as you are inside, the door slams shut behind you. Suddenly a voice booms out of nowhere shouting, Welcome to Death Trap Dungeon, the ingenious killer labyrinth of my master. Adventurer, I trust you will pay your respects to my master by shouting out his name. Will you shout, Hail, Circumvit, or Circumvit is a worm? I mean, I guess he's an egomaniac. I mean, he's a baron. Are there any barons that aren't egomaniacs? 
I'll go hail Circumvit. Once again, the mysterious voice calls out, only this time its tone is full of contempt and derision. So we have a snivelling weed in our midst, do we? sneers the voice. My master has a special gift for you, loathsome creep. Suddenly, water starts pouring into the room through a hole in the ceiling. It soon rises above your ankles. There is no apparent way of escape. You wade back to the door. It's firmly locked, but in desperation you try ramming it with your shoulder. Roll two dice. If the total is the same or less than your skill score, I guess we can open the door, and with a skill of twelve, that shouldn't be too hard. The door cannot withstand the furious battering you are giving it. The centre panel cracks and splinters, enabling you to kick a hole in it large enough for you to squeeze through. Wet, but happy to have survived your ordeal, you set off north again. The tunnel twists and turns, but keeps steadily north. Ahead, you see a thin shaft of blue light streaming down from the ceiling to the floor. It sparkles and shimmers, and you can see images of laughing faces in the light. If you wish to walk through the light, you can. If you would rather walk round the light, you can do that too. There's an illustration, which uh, another great use of negative space. And you can see that, yeah, basically, there's this light and it's full of big laughing joker faces. So I think I'm going to take that as fair warning not to step into the beam of laughing joker faces, lest I come out the other side some kind of nutter who thinks that the film Joker is the best movie ever made rather than a mediocre thriller with a famous character's face nailed on. So we will walk round the light. You come to an arched doorway set in the right-hand wall of the tunnel. The heavy stone door is closed, but there is an iron latch and a round handle. Do you wish to try the door, or would you rather continue along the tunnel? I guess I'm going to open the door. Lifting the latch and pushing the heavy stone door open, you find yourself in a large cavern. The light is dim and murky, but as your eyes begin to adjust, you see the walls are covered with green algae and running with moisture. The floor is strewn with straw. The atmosphere is warm, damp and fetid, and a soft humming sound fills the air. You step gingerly through the straw towards a corner of the cavern where there appears to be a shallow pit. Peering warily into the pit, you are disgusted to see a mass of pale, writhing worms, some as much as half a metre long. Utterly nauseated, you are about to turn away when you notice that their undulating bodies are swarming round a dagger, its point held fast in a crack in the pit's floor. The hilt is cased in black leather, studded with opals, and the blade is fashioned from a strange, reddish-black burnished metal you have never seen before. You long to touch the dagger, but this would mean plunging your hand in among the writhing worms. Do you reach for the dagger or back away in disgust and leave the cavern? There's a lovely illustration of the dagger, which has got this, this uh, wonderfully ornate uh, pommel. It seems to be in the shape of some kind of bird. The whole studded with opal things also seems relevant. Like I'm getting the impression that gems are a feature. So we're going to reach in for the dagger and hope that the worms are not an insta-death. Taking a deep breath, you lean over the pit and plunge your forearm into the mass of wriggling worms. They are cold and clammy and feel extremely nasty. But at least they are harmless, and you are able to seize the dagger by the hilt. You give it a hard tug and it comes away from the crack in which the tip was embedded. Admiring its beauty, and wondering whether it might once have belonged to some luckless contestant, you put the oval-studded dagger firmly in your belt and leave the cavern. As you make your way back to the doorway, the buzzing sound increases in intensity. You look around desperately to discover where it's coming from. Glancing up in the nick of time, you see the huge and grotesque black shape of a giant fly emerging from a recess high up in the cavern wall. As it gets closer, you realise that it's at least one and a half metres long. Its opaque wings vibrate, making the sickening buzzing noise you can hear, and its six black hairy legs are poised to grasp your body. 
Below its multifaceted eyes is a long, shiny black proboscis, which darts in and out venomously. You have stolen the giant fly's treasure from her brood of maggots, and you must take the consequences. Why does a giant fly want a jewelled dagger? Is it compensating for something? Inquiring minds want to know. Test the luck. Let's see how we get on. My luck is still 11, so I should be fine. Yep, 7. I am lucky. Now down to 10. You manage to evade the outstretched legs of the diving giant fly. Stepping back, you draw your sword and prepare to fight this hideous insect as it turns to attack you again. Giant fly has a skill of 7 and a stamina of 8. And I can escape by running back into the tunnel. Okay, I'll see you on the other side. Well, I've made some disgusting wriggling worms. Orphan disgusting wriggling worms. Hopefully one of them doesn't come back to uh, take revenge later in life. You wipe the vile yellow slime from the blade of your sword and walk quickly to the door, back into the tunnel, and head north. The tunnel ends shortly at a junction. Looking left and right, you see a narrow passage disappearing into the dim distance. Do you wish to head west, or would you rather go east? Well, we went west at the start of the adventure, so let's go east. You walk down the passage and soon find yourself standing at the edge of a deep, dark pit. The passage continues east on the other side of the pit. You think you could probably jump over the pit, but you aren't sure. There's a rope hanging down from the ceiling over the centre of the pit. Will you throw your shield over the pit and jump after it? Jump over the pit carrying all your possessions, or reach for the rope with your sword to enable you to swing across the pit? I mean, this feels like a very obvious trap. I'm not going to reach for the rope. I bet it's a snake. Uh, I'm not going to jump over the pit carrying all my possessions. I'll throw my shield over the pit and jump after it. Just as you are about to release the shield and throw it over the pit, it slips from your fingers and rolls away. You are unable to catch it before it falls over the edge of the pit, clattering down its sides to the bottom. The loss of your shield reduces your fighting ability. Lose one skill point. Cursing your own clumsiness, you step forward, leap across the pit, and land safely on the other side. You waste no time, but head off east. The tunnel makes a sudden left turn and continues north for as far as you can see. You soon arrive at a closed wooden door in the left-hand wall. Do you wish to open the door, or would you rather keep going north? I think we will open the door. The door opens into a large candlelit room filled with the most extraordinarily lifelike statues of knights and warriors. A white-haired old man, dressed in tattered rags, suddenly jumps out from behind one of the statues and starts to giggle. Though he looks like a fool, the sparkle in his eye makes you think there is more to him than is apparent. In a high-pitched voice, he says, Oh good, another stone for my garden. I'm glad you've come to join your friends. Now, I'm a fair man, and so I'll ask you a question. If you answer correctly, I'll let you go free. But if your answer is wrong, I'll turn you to stone. <laughs> he starts to chuckle again, obviously pleased with your arrival. Will you wait for his question? Attack him with your sword or make a run for the door? I will... Wait for his question, because I think if I attack him, I'm assuming at least one of the various knights and warriors have tried to stab the old man. Uh, there's another really nice illustration as well, where you can see the yeah genuinely demonic glint in the old man's eye and his wild, straggly beard and hair. Yeah, it's very, very evocative. But yeah, I'm sure others have tried attacking him and running for it and probably come to nothing, so let's wait for the question. The old man points at one of the statues and you recognise it immediately. It is the knight who started the Trial of Champions. The agonised look on his face is locked in stone for eternity. The old man smiles, saying, This man weighs 100 pounds plus half his weight. How much does he weigh? What will you answer? One hundred pounds? One hundred and fifty pounds? Or two hundred pounds? Okay, so one hundred pounds plus half his weight is a very roundabout and obtuse way of saying half his weight. 
is £100, so he weighs £200. Still smiling, the old man looks at you and says, Well done, stranger. You have answered correctly. I wish you good fortune during the rest of the trial of champions, and to this end I shall increase your powers. He then mutters a few more unintelligible words, and you feel a powerful surge soar through your body. Add one each to your luck, stamina, and skill scores. You bid the old man farewell, and leave his room to continue north along the passage. So that takes our skill back up to 12, our stamina up to 23, and our luck up to 11. Only a few metres further down the passage, you see another closed door in the left-hand wall. The letter X is scratched into its centre panel. Putting your ear to the door, you listen intently but can hear nothing. Do you wish to open the door, or would you rather keep walking north? X because it's a bad place, or X because X marks the spot? Inquiring minds want to know. Um, oh, oh, let's open the door. The door opens into a large room. You look round the room and see nothing of interest apart from an alcove in the west wall and a stone chair in the middle of the room. Sitting on the chair is the skeleton of an armed warrior, possibly a contestant from years gone by. The skeletal fingers of its right hand are gripped round a piece of parchment. Do you wish to take the parchment from the skeleton, or would you rather walk over to the alcove? There is an illustration. The skeleton appears to be wearing some very antique scale mail and is sitting in an attitude of, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of the main character from Married with Children, which is a reference that definitely dates me. I will, however, go and take the parchment from the skeleton. I imagine it'll be like taking parchment from a skeleton. Why that saying's never caught on. Touching the parchment has precisely the effect you had feared. The skeleton lurches forward and, rising from its chair in a series of jerky movements, raises its sword to strike you. Lunging sideways, you draw your sword to defend yourself. The skeleton warrior has a skill of eight and a stamina of six. See you shortly. I have defeated the skeleton warrior. He did hit me once, taking my stamina down to 21. Once again you reach for the parchment, only this time it is lying amidst a pile of broken bones. Unfolding it you see a map of a room with a drawing of a hideous creature inside it. Beneath the monster is a rhyme which reads, Should you meet the manticore of its tail beware, shield yourself against the spikes flying through the air. You fold up the piece of parchment and put it in your backpack, repeating the rhyme over and over to yourself, you walk across to the alcove. At the back of the alcove are some steps leading down into a cellar. The cellar ceiling is quite low and the floor is strewn with rubbish and debris. In the middle of the wall opposite you is an archway which leads into another crystal-lit tunnel. There are large mushrooms growing on the rubbish to your right. Do you wish to step through the archway or would you rather stop to eat some of the mushrooms? I mean, I do love mushrooms, but I maybe don't love mushrooms I don't recognise growing in a place called Death Trap Dungeon, so I'm going to give those mushrooms a miss. The tunnel continues west for several hundred metres, finally ending at some steps leading up to a closed trapdoor. You climb the steps slowly, hearing muffled voices above you. In the dim light, you can see that the trapdoor is not locked. Do you wish to knock on the trapdoor, or burst through the trapdoor with your sword drawn? Knocking may very well be polite, but pretty much everything in the Death Trap dungeon has tried to kill me, with the exception of the man who threatened to kill me if I didn't answer a riddle. So I think I might just burst through the trapdoor. You throw the trapdoor open and run up the steps into a bright lantern-lit room. Two goblins are sharpening their short swords on a stone set in the middle of the floor. You catch them momentarily off guard, but they quickly recover and both rush forward to attack you. So we're fighting them at the same time, which means that uh, both goblins get a chance to hurt me, but I only get a chance to hurt one of them. This should be fine, however, as the first goblin has a skill of 5 and a stamina of 4, and the second goblin has a skill of 5 and a stamina of 5. So I'm going to stab them to death, I think. 
I killed the goblins in short order, um, despite rolling very low. And there's something surprisingly pleasing, I think, about killing kind of low-skill scrubs with low rolls, because it doesn't feel as though you're getting rid of any of your good rolls, if that makes any sense at all. Like, you don't want to waste a double six on a skill five goblin. That's just self-indulgent. The only furniture in the goblin's room is a table, two chairs and a cupboard on the wall. There are two closed doors, one in the west wall and the other in the north wall. Would you like to open the cupboard, open the west door or open the north door? Oh, let's look in the cupboard. The cupboard contains a wooden mallet and ten iron spikes, which you put in your backpack while wondering which door to open. Would you like to go west or north? Well, I think I will go west. The door opens into another tunnel. Walking west, you soon arrive at a door in the north wall. If you wish to open the door, you can, or you can continue west. I mean, we're going to open the door. The door opens into a small room in which there is a human skull with a jewelled eyes resting on top of a marble plinth. A row of loaded crossbows is fixed to the left-hand wall, and two small wooden balls lie on the floor just inside the door. Will you walk into the room and pick up the skull? Throw a wooden ball at the skull from the doorway, or close the door and continue west, taking the wooden balls with you. Jewels are becoming something of a fixture of this adventure. I mean, it is always a bit unnerving when the book so obviously signals a trap and so obviously suggests a solution. And in this case, there's also an illustration really just hammering home that there's a bunch of crossbows that are going to go off if you walk across the room, but two incredibly tempting orbs. So I guess we're going to go and grab the wooden ball and hoy it at the skull. You take aim and hurl the wooden ball at the skull. Roll two dice. If the number rolled is the same as or less than your skill, you succeed. My skill is 12, so that automatically happens. The wooden ball smashes into the skull, knocking it off the plinth and onto the floor. Much to your surprise, the crossbows do not release their deadly bolts. You step into the room cautiously and pick up the skull off the floor. You recognise the yellow jewelled eyes as topaz and eagerly pluck them from their sockets. You put them in your backpack, wondering whether or not a trap still awaits you in the room. Will you get down on all fours and crawl out of the room holding the skull, or replace the skull on the plinth before leaving the room? I think I will get down on all fours and crawl out of the room holding the skull, like... If the trap's broken or it's a pretend trap just to mess with my head, I'll look a bit silly, but literally no one's watching, which is a problem now I think about it with the trial of the champions. Because as a spectator sport, watching people go into a door and then not hearing anything else that happens to them lacks a certain something. Oh well, I guess that's the problem with medieval times. You have to make your own fun. When I were a lad, we'd, we'd, we'd queue for three days just, just for the chance to watch someone wander through a door. A tickling sensation runs down your spine as you crawl carefully out of the room. Back in the tunnel, you heave a sigh of relief, throw the skull back into the room and slam the door shut. Pleased with your good fortune, you set off west once again. The tunnel takes a sharp right turn and you find yourself in a sort of gallery lined with mirrors for some 20 metres. A human skeleton appears to be pulled halfway through the mirror along the right-hand wall. Suddenly, a grotesque being with four arms and four screaming faces emerges from the mirror, barring your way ahead. It walks slowly towards you, each arm outstretched to grab you. It is a mirror demon from another dimensional plane. Come to take your spirit. Will you make a wish if you are wearing a ring of wishes, which I am not? Try and smash the mirrors, or attack the mirror demon with your sword. Well, I'm not generally one of nature's optimists, but I'm going to have a crack at smashing the mirrors. The illustration here is ridiculously good. Uh, really, really unsettling. You can see the mirror demon, which is sort of like a kind of lithe woman with these four faces all jammed together and these four arms coming in and out of all the various mirrors on the side it's it's oh yeah it's really unsettling i love it you swing your sword against the mirror with all your might but to no effect the mirror does not break and the mirror demon keeps advancing do you want to try and smash the mirror again or would you rather attack the mirror demon instead well they do say that insanity is 
doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So I think I'm just going to attack the mirror demon so that she at least can't get the drop on me. The mirror demon, being solely intent on grabbing your arm, makes no attempt to defend itself. That's concerning. The mirror demon has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 10. If during any attack round, the mirror demon's attack strength is greater than your own, something is going to happen. Uh, so we need to defeat the mirror demon without it ever managing to touch us. Uh, wish me luck. I'll hopefully see you on the other side. The mirror demon grabbed us with the first attack. The mirror demon grabs you by the wrist. Immediately it starts to pull you towards the mirror. Its strength is incredible and despite all your efforts you cannot prevent it from pulling you relentlessly towards the mirror. When it touches the mirror it seems to disappear straight through it. With horror you see your own arm disappear followed by the rest of your body. You are now in a mirror world, another dimension from which you can never return. That's unfortunate. Well, I'm going to invoke the sausagey bookmark clause and I'm going to send us wibbling back in time and I'm going to find out what would have happened had I smashed the mirror again because I, I do have to know. Okay. The mirror demon is almost on top of you when, summoning all your strength, you strike one final blow against the mirror with your sword. Roll two dice if the total is the same as or less than your skill. Turn to one page. If the total is greater than your skill, turn to another. Well, my skill is or was 12. So let's see what happens to the ghost of Vastly Bromagnet. The mirror shatters, sending fragments of glass flying everywhere. The mirror demon's four faces cry out in agony and cracks appear all over them, and they too shatter and fall to the floor in a pile of broken glass. Unfortunately, you cut your sword arm badly while smashing the mirror. Your strength is unaffected, your weapon skill is diminished. Lose two skill points before continuing your journey north. Okay, well having satisfied myself of the outcome should you not hurl yourself willingly into the arms of the mirror demon on literally the very first round of combat i think we will have to draw a veil over proceedings there i'll be back in just a couple of seconds with a few of my thoughts on death trap dungeon this has been one of the most maddening episodes of fantastic fights to actually create with this show i'm trying to do two things i'm trying to give you an authentic experience of playing through an adventure game book and at the same time i'm aiming to show off as much as possible of the game book itself in the case of death trap dungeon these two experiences are almost impossible to combine the sheer difficulty of the book's challenges makes an honest playthrough likely to be frustratingly brief, especially if the person playing the book is some kind of idiot man-child. On the other hand, taking the time to practice and look up a map, it robs the experience of immediacy and excitement. Part of the fun of recording these playthroughs is not knowing ahead of time how it's going to pan out. So, in a possibly futile attempt to balance these competing desires, I settled on doing two playthroughs, hoping to explore different routes each time and thus strike a balance between honesty and actually getting to show off the book. In many ways, I still don't feel like I succeeded, but I think that's fine because there's nothing more authentic when it comes to Death Trap Dungeon than feeling like you've failed. I genuinely think this is a great adventure game book, but I'm really happy that it didn't become the template for future instalments. The sheer imagination on display of the design of the dungeons is awe-inspiring. Livingstone manages to make a virtue of unfairness by being completely and totally upfront about it. The whole framing device of a challenge, deliberately designed to be utterly lethal, is really, really useful. Not least because the stakes are intentionally kept low. There is no greater peril to be faced in Death Trap Dungeon. Your death... Your inevitable death will serve only to maintain the status quo. The trial of the champions will return next year and someone else will eventually claim the honour of being the first victor. 
By stripping an emotional context out of the equation, you are free to almost enjoy the various gruesome ways you'll meet your fate. And it's always tempting to dive back in and try again straight away because you know that this time you might be able to get just a little bit further. And that's a great feeling. There are a plethora of amazing encounters in Death Trap Dungeon and frequently they're given even more character by Ian McCaig's brilliant artwork. He shows off the full range of his talents here, showing a deft hand at marrying style to mood in much the same way he did with City of Thieves. A fight with a morning star wielding orc makes use of forced perspective to show the weapon bulging almost out of the page. Similarly, a rock grub erupts out of the wall in a shower of dark masonry. The humanoid faces have got a variety of expressions from sinister to friendly to downright insane. And then there's the hideous mirror demon which did for me and the disgusting blood beast that adorns the front cover of the book. The artwork really helps elevate the material and his slightly caricatured quality to the way he's rendered the characters also helps keep the atmosphere from becoming too bleak and depressive. There's always that wicked, slightly sadistic sense of fun lurking in the background and I think that's really important. It's obviously a shame I didn't get to show off more of the dungeon than I did because almost every element of it deserves special mention. Now, I said earlier I was glad that this didn't become the standard template for fighting fantasy books, and that's because I'm not generally the biggest fan of actual dungeons in role-playing games. They often feel prescriptive in terms of how you approach them, and I feel like they often reward a conservative play style over the more swashbuckling approach I prefer in both running and playing in role-playing games. But Death Trap Dungeon is a macabre delight, And not just because there's so many different challenges to face. One minute you're climbing up a giant idol, the next you might be delving into a hole full of wriggling worms or fighting for your life against a giant dinosaur. No, the thing that really stands out to me after playing through several times is how cleverly Livingstone uses memorable elements to help you understand and grasp the meta-construction of the dungeon. Like, it doesn't take long to realise that... Gems of various sorts are going to be critical to your success, even without being directly told. But also, the presence of your competitors in the dungeon makes a wonderful repeating motif, which subtly encourages you towards the right track. You want to find out what horrors befall your compatriots because it's inherently interesting. So Livingstone ensures that the correct path through the dungeon has you either meet or find the remains of all of the other competitors. You'll eventually find yourself teaming up with one of them for a period, an alliance tinged with tragedy at the knowledge that in the end there can be only one winner. Alongside the more obvious markers, Livingstone is also careful to make sure every corridor of note has something in it to jog your memory. If you remember, one of my criticisms of Warlock of Firetop Mountain was that the early rooms all looked exactly alike, and it was really hard to keep them straight. Here, there's often a few key details pulled out of the environment to help you remember, even if you haven't been keeping a map, which you probably should, because it's a proper maze. But I like how varied and interesting the locations are, and how every encounter seems to offer both opportunity or sudden death. It's a tense old business at times. Of course, It's often entirely arbitrary whether you'll live or die. Baron Succumbit wants you to call him a worm rather than treat him with respect. One manky amulet you find on a thug is cursed. Another manky amulet you find on a different but similar thug has magical powers. The dungeon is littered with these choices and ultimately only trial and error is going to get you through all of them. There's still plenty of places where you can progress by thinking carefully and particularly by applying the old adage that if a thing seems too good to be true, then it probably is. If it was just random and unfair, then the whole thing would be an exercise in nothing but frustration. But on the other hand, if everything was foreshadowed, then it would be too easy, which wouldn't fit the brutally unfair theme that Livingstone's going for. It's hard not to look at Death Trap Dungeon as 
Ian Livingstone wanting to go back and have another crack at a pure dungeon adventure with the benefit of having several more fighting fantasy books under his belt. But I think it's also a chance to poke fun at the very concept of the dungeon in the first place. Dungeons are these strange locations in role-playing games. They don't often make much sense. The temptation, particularly for more modern gamers, is always to try and turn a dungeon into something that does make sense, such as a, a crumbling castle or a ruined temple. But the problem with that is that the more sense a dungeon makes, the less it actually feels like a dungeon. A dungeon is this strange non-place where different monsters live cheek by jowl with strange old men dispensing clues and treasure chests will either contain traps or magical weapons apparently at random. A dungeon feels artificial and surreal and here Ian Livingston has found the perfect way to present that strange and bizarre location in a way that makes sense in the emerging shared setting of the fighting fantasy books. What's nice too is that having basically nailed the dungeon theme with Death Trap Dungeon Ian Livingstone knew to leave well enough alone, at least for a while. His next few books explore different locations and themes before eventually returning to Sucumbit's newly rejigged murder basement in 1986's Trial of Champions, which is quite a few instalments down the line. All in all, I think Death Trap Dungeon is a great entry in the sequence. Perhaps not so great for a playthrough podcast, but great nonetheless. And it's possible that I might even return to Death Trap Dungeon again for another tour through Sucumbit's stabby hole in the hill. Watch this space. There will be another bonus episode along shortly with my first playthrough, so look out for that. Otherwise, I'll be returning at some point soon. There's some family stuff currently going on in my life that might conceivably interfere with my recording schedule, but I will try and let you know if that's going to be the case. Don't forget that if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can express your appreciation in a monetary way by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a quid a month. Or you can express your appreciation in a non-monetary way by simply leaving a review or telling someone you think might enjoy this nonsense. You can follow me on Twitter at hjdoom or email me at hjdoomretrofun, which is all one word, at gmail.com. Take care of yourselves, be excellent to each other, and I'll see you again soon.